HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tehama, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? Uh, we hear dashiwa and mizakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Dave Broom, who is an internationally acclaimed author, journalist, and consultant specializing in spirits, in particular whiskey. And he has written 10 books, including The World Atlas of Whiskey, and the latest one is The Way of Whiskey, A Journey Around Japanese Whiskey. Japanese whiskey has become very popular globally in recent years, and some of the brands are hard to get, even in Japan. So today we'll discover the uniqueness of Japanese whiskey, cultural aspects of Japanese whiskey that Dave explores in his book, and fascinating Japanese whiskey producers, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We appreciate your feedback. And also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikukatema.com. Now let's start our conversation with Dave Broom. Hello, Dave. Welcome to Japanese. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, great to have you here. I've been really looking forward to seeing you because <laughs> I, after reading your book, I had so many goosebumps. Many <laughs> times your book is amazing. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. 
So, uh, so we'll discuss your book uh, in details in a moment. But uh, first, um, where are you from, and uh, how did you become a spirit spirits writer? Right. Yeah, uh, from Glasgow in Scotland. As you probably tell from the accent. <laughs> uh, and I've been writing about uh, drink in general for thirty years now, and specialising in spirits really since nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six. Uh, it was kind of right place, right time. Uh, I. Prior to that, I worked in a wine shop, did wine exams, uh, worked in Australian wineries, ran a pub, uh, and then got a job uh, writing uh, about booze in, in general. Mm. And then when I went freelance, kind of realised that in those days, this kind of the, the, the mid-90s, that the, the whole cocktail culture was beginning to take off in London. Mm. Uh, single malt was actually beginning to grow, uh, and there was a lot of interest uh, in, in spirits in general but at that time there were only three other people writing about it mm. uh, whereas there was about 300 people writing about wine so not only was I interested in it but I could actually be able to get, mm. get articles placed Interesting. Uh, so it was kind of right, right place right time really and also the internet started to be more explosive too. Yes, yeah. I mean, although, I mean, I, I do remember, you know, in the early days when I was kind of doing research, historical research or, or whatever for books, you know, it was very hard to get, get sources, mm. uh, you know, and uh, the industry was perhaps slightly less willing to give up what they viewed <laughs> as being secrets. Uh, right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's so much easier now, to, and especially to get archival stuff, you know, mm. uh, to, to go onto you know, go onto the web and rather than having to go to the British Library, you, you can actually uh, get a lot of uh, historical documents mm. uh, much more easily now. So wow. it makes my life a lot simpler. Mm. Okay. And uh, so I heard that you've been to Japan uh, three, 30 times yeah. in the past 16 years in studying learning about whiskey. So what brought you to Japan in the first place? Well, um, I cut I a couple of things. One was, I mean, Japanese whiskey began to be uh, exported to the UK in the, G- the late 90s. Uh, Yamazaki, then Hakushu initially, then Nika came in. Uh, and there was beginning to be a buzz about Japanese whiskey at that point. And then I was working for a magazine called Whiskey Magazine at that point, mm. and they put on a whiskey show, which kind of one of this kind of new concept. I think you know, people in a room drinking whiskey was kind of a weird thing. <laughs> uh, and they put one on in Tokyo and invited myself and my my dear friend and mentor Michael Jackson to to come over to to give talks uh, mm. there. And that was my first visit to Japan. Mm. Uh, and I'd wanted to go to Japan for a whole host of reasons prior to that. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's, where, that's where it started. So I was already in love with Japan and I, I was head over heels in love by the time I left. Mm. So. <laughs> right. So, um, but how did you, like, you know, you went to Japan and you knew, um, you know, Yamazaki, Hibiki, those, uh, you know, classic the beginning of Japanese whiskey culture, but why was you got so interested in Japanese whiskey when you visited? Well, yeah, I, I think it kind of happened pretty much on that first day uh, when I was at Yamazaki with uh, the blending team and tasting the whiskies <coughs> and really tasting them properly for the first time. Mm. So rather than just having kind of one glass of uh, you know, a single malt, suddenly mm. you've got different component parts and different casks and different ages, and suddenly the range began to become more apparent. And I was at, and I asked them, you know, how do you describe the, the characteristic of Japanese mm. whiskey? And uh, a gentleman called Masumi Nabe uh, said, well, we, we, re- we described it as having transparency. And that just hit me. Yeah, there was a resonance to that. And I said, well, okay, right. So what does this transparency mean? 
And I, I understood kind of intuitively what he meant because the, the, the range of aromas, the way that flavour and aroma is, is demonstrated within Japanese whisky is fundamentally different to the way it, mm. it exhibits itself in scotch. Uh, and that was kind of my end, uh, trying to unpick what this transparency was. And I was kind of a bit of a whisky geek about it and thought it was all to do with just process. Mm. And then the, the more I looked, the more I understood that uh, it was actually part and parcel of a Japanese cultural aesthetic. You know, mm. it was it was linked to traditional craft. It was linked to the way that people make, uh, you know, not just food or sake or, or whatever, but also mm. uh, ceramics or mm. knife work or, or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just went down further, further, further mm. down the rabbit hole, if you like. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think uh, it's a package, meaning, like, um, so Japanese whiskey... Um, Model uh, people say it's modeled after Scotch, but then the Scottish whiskey culture is different from Japanese uh, whiskey culture because it's a whole package. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I think that's that, that's that's the nub of the book. Basically, you know, that, that's that's the theme that whiskey is a cultural product. Mm. Uh, we, we tend to think we. I think everybody now realizes that food is a cultural product, but but drink somehow maybe wine. People appreciate there's a wine culture, but spirits. Uh, I think have been because they've been sold as brands. Mm. Uh, people have not really the, the dialogue hasn't been set up mm. to be able to talk about spirits as actually having some cultural background to them. But mm. but they do, uh, and that's what I wanted to explore. And right. exactly your point, you know. I mean, I always say, and it, it sounds kind of glib, but you know, the, the Japanese make the best Japanese whiskey in the world, mm. and, 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 and and the Scots make the best Scotch, and and they are fundamentally different for. A whole number of reasons, mm. uh, and it could be climate, and it could be you know what is growing there, and it could be technique. But at its heart, it's actually how it fits within a wider culture, mm. and Japanese culture just uh, impinges and, and influences uh, flavor and occasion and everything. So, right. so yeah. Okay, so let's kind of talk about the cultural things. So, first, uh, what about uh, the history? of Japanese whiskey. What's the history? Like brief history of Japanese Yeah, yeah a very brief history of Japanese whiskey. Uh, so whiskey first gets imported into Japan when Japan is opened up to the West. Mm. And Scotland becomes very important in terms of establishing heavy industry in Japan. So there was lots of very rich trading links between Scotland and, uh, and Japan in the late 19th century. And uh, a lot of imported wh- uh, whiskey, mm. and spirits in general, began coming in. Japanese distillers began trying to do imitations of that and then realised by the 1919, roughly, Mm. that why not try and actually make it themselves rather than trying to fake it. Mm. Uh, And so the first distillery, which is Yamazaki, was built in 1923, Mm. began making whiskey by Suntory, Mm. and made, you know, the first whiskey appeared in 1928. So, you know, but it's not, it wasn't really exported Mm. because... uh, Japanese uh, had an insatiable thirst for whiskey, <laughs> uh, especially in the kind of post-war period. And it was drunk. Everything was drunk uh, in the domestic market. Mm. So when it appeared in the export markets in the 90s, everybody went, oh, it's a new kid on the block. It's actually been made since the 1920s. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so, so we're, we're kind of playing a massive game of catch-up to, mm. to, to some extent. Interesting. Uh, but it's been a fascinating... Uh, way in which the, the, the whiskey culture has developed in Japan and, and had its own very individual personality and its own in, uh, the distillers have their own unique way of looking at how to create flavours and, and how to make whiskies which appeal to a Japanese palate mm. and Japanese sensibilities and 
you know, the, the yes, the, the technique came from Scotland, but mm. the application of it is Japanese. Right. So how do you, we're going to talk about those each distilleries later, but uh, what is the characteristics of a Japanese whiskey versus other countries' whiskies? I would say, uh, kind of coming back to that transparency, Mm. Uh, so it, they have a, an aromatic intensity and a clarity, which uh, you don't see in Scotch. It's not that they're more complex; it's just the nature of the complexity is different. Mm. So I think you just get to see they're they're slightly more restrained than Scotch, certainly more restrained than than bourbon. Mm. Uh, you know, bourbon kind of shouts and says hello. You know, it, it's very <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's what bourbon does. And, you know, and you know, it's not a restrained or, or mm. shy spirit. Mm. Scotch isn't necessarily very shy either. Scotch is also quite bold, and Japanese whiskey has just got the, this restraint uh, mm. and and as I said, kind of aromatic intensity to it. Mm. Uh, I describe it as being like <clears throat> the difference between Scotch whiskey is like a, a mountain stream. You know, and, and all all the. The flavours are kind of bouncing about all over rocks and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of hard to discern exactly what's happening. Whereas in Japanese whiskey, it's like a clear pool and mm-hmm. you can actually see everything very clearly in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other kind of fundamental difference between Japanese single malt and scotch is that Japanese single malt tends not to have a cereal character. So it doesn't have that kind of dry nuttiness, mm-hmm. uh, which, which scotch does. Uh, sometimes overtly but it's usually there in the background of, of scotch and japanese distillers for using various techniques deliberately trying to avoid having that mm. and that helps to promote that very very clear intense mm. uh, aroma so the subtlety uh, makes things clear like a water yes yeah I, yeah it does and it also then ties into japanese culture so then it ties into food and it ties into this idea of uh, japanese term shibui which is uh, restraint, which is elegance, which is you know being understated, not ostentatious, mm. uh, allowing the ingredients to show themselves, uh, which you know underpins Japanese food, but also underpins tea, un- underpins you mm. know ceramics, everything, the Japanese decor, Japanese architecture, right. every, you know, and that's why whiskey is part of that. Mm. You know, it's, and that is there in the background uh, all the time. That's right. that's the one reason why Japanese whiskey becomes Japanese because mm. all of a sudden that element uh, comes into play. Right. Um, one of the reasons I really liked your book is, uh, you know, it's a page of Shibui, explaining Shibui yeah. concept. <laughs> I've never seen anybody that done so well. Oh, and thank you. It, it was quite, I was suddenly aware, you know, here you have somebody from Scotland trying to describe Japanese aesthetics and that, that's kind of... <laughs> That's kind of arrogant, really, yeah, or, or, or potentially getting it badly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but there's another <laughs> right next to it. I think the page after that was uh, Wabi Sabi, which yeah, is yeah. really like perfect. And I, I'm going to quote your words no, from it's, that. It's like, yeah, yeah, Wabi Sabi. Re- I was trying. To, I think I see in the book. I was trying to avoid Wabi Sabi all the way through uh, because it's so hard to try and explain. But I, mean, I, I think Shibuya is, is 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 a good one. But yeah. Ultimately, you end up with wabi sabi. So, uh, but I, what I realise in Japan is that every time you ask somebody about wabi sabi, they come up with a different answer. So, mm. <laughs> uh, I, I was quite confident that I could just like throw in something else. <laughs> <laughs> That's the culture. Yeah, that, <laughs> is culture. Culture. that is culture. <laughs> right. Yeah, but uh, well, I have to quote this one. So, it's in your book, uh, The Way of Whiskey. You say Japanese whiskies have aromatic intensity, unlike Scotch, and they are paradoxically managing to be vivid yet delicate, salty. Um, subtly powerful and the flavors are ordered complex and seamless 
on the tongue, and they had a clarity and precision. And uh, some were familiar with Scotch, but the manner in which they presented themselves was different. So, as yeah. beautiful. And Thank I you. got more interested in the Japanese whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, so, um, yeah, so one of the things you, uh, you find as one of the elements of Japanese whiskey is the Mizunara. Uh, so what is Mizunara and what is so unique about? Okay, uh, Mizunara is a Japanese term for, for, oak, for Japanese oak. Uh, so it's a species of oak and there's kind of a still slight debate as to which particular subspecies of oak uh, it is. Could be Quercus mongolica, it might be, might be a different one uh, entirely. Uh, and it's, it gives a very, it gives a unique characteristic. You know, so think about it this way, you know, 60% roughly speaking of a whiskey's flavour is coming from the interaction between the spirit and the oak. So mm. the oak's got an important part to play in, in terms of flavour creation. And each species of oak has a different flavour. Mm. Uh, so American oak is very rich in vanilla. European oak is quite rich in kind of dried fruit and spice and tannin. And Japanese oak, after about 20 years in cask, uh, you get this incredible uh, smell of incense. Mm. Uh, and it's the smell of a Japanese temple, oh. uh, which is very handy for people who've been to Japanese temples to say, but if you've never been to a Japanese temple, it's a bit obscure. <laughs> but 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 it's it's the smell of aloes wood, uh, oud, uh, and it's very, very intense. Uh, mm. And there's also quite a lot of coconut in there as well when it's younger. Mm. And it's, it's just one of these key markers that say, this is different. You know, th mm. this kind of really takes you off into a different aromatic world. Mm. It's quite rare. Uh, it's very hard to cooper. Uh, it's, it's, it leaks... You know, mm. you know, whiskey makers don't like using it because it doesn't make very good casks because oh. the whiskey fl <laughs> flows out of it. Uh, <laughs> but from an aromatic point of view, mm. uh, it, it's incredibly important. The problem with it is that the in Japan that there hasn't been the same uh, degree of kind of organised forestry mm. that you get, say, in Europe. You know, where, where you have planned forests from France from like from the 16th century onwards, or, mm. or in America, where, where you have also planned forestry going on. So all the mizunara, which is being felled at the moment, is kind of wild. Wow. Uh, and very old trees, so they have to be about 150 years before you can even cut them down. Wow. Uh, and there's not a lot of it about, so it tends to drive price up. Uh, distillers are now beginning to plant mizunara, so for every one tree they cut down, they're, they're planting another three. Mm. So, uh, you know, listen up, folks. You know, you know, in 100 years, 150 years' time, you'll be able to drink lo lots of mizunara <laughs> casks, you know. Uh, you know, just keep drinking whiskey, you might live that long. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a medicine. Yeah, exactly. But no, actually, it's an interesting one, because that's what whiskey's about. Whiskey's about, it's a long-term spirit, you know. Trees take 100 years, 150 years to, mm. to mature, you know. So what you're doing now is actually laying down the fundamentals for, mm. for people, you know, in a century's time. Right. It's, it's incredible. Right. You know? And not to mention whiskey itself takes 20, 30 years if you yeah, patient. Yeah, you know, <laughs> whiskey can take, you know, a long time. You're going to be put in the cask. You're, you're not going to be taken out of the cask for maybe, I mean, three years, conceivably, mm. at the youngest, but, but considerably longer for some, yeah. Right. Okay, so um, let's talk about your book. So, uh, The Way of Whiskey, uh, why did you decide to write this book? Uh, because I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of challenge myself, to be honest, to a certain extent. I, I'd written some whiskey books in the past, and whiskey books for me were just becoming a little formulaic. Not, not that they weren't good, but you 
it was kind of, you know, you had the history chapter, and then you had the production chapter, and then you went through every distillery and your tasting notes, and, and it was all good, and it was relevant, and it was important, and, you know, it was, it was exciting stuff. But I wanted to kind of get under the... I began, just began getting obsessed about this cultural aspect, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Uh, I thought, OK, right, let, let's just test myself with uh, trying to explore Japanese whiskey in a different way. Uh, and the, the, the great thing was uh, a good friend of mine uh, called Stefan Van Eyken uh, at the same time was writing a book about Japanese whiskey and I knew Stefan's approach was going to be much more of that real in-depth technical side, mm. uh, which I didn't really want to stray into. So I thought, well, that's great because, you know, there's a clear division between the books. His mm. book is absolutely fantastic and it allows me to actually take, you know, go in this what might seem a slightly more unusual mm. route for a whiskey book, but I, I don't see... I, I just thought it was relevant because I read great you know, books about food and, and food writers have, have, are allowed to do that mm. and wine writers are kind of allowed to do that, but spirits writers haven't been allowed to do that really. Mm. Uh, perhaps we just haven't allowed ourselves to do it. Uh, so it was yeah, just you know, dipping my toe in the water and, and, mm. and seeing. So, so yeah, so, so that, that was the... That, that was the Impulse, yeah, mm. that, that was the genesis well, of the book. Like you described, it's a it's an unusual uh, whiskey book because, you know, usually like, like you said, the history and uh, definition and tasting notes and this bottle is probably paid by this company, like that kind of thing. But this is a book of your journey in Japan, yeah. as, as if I'm traveling with you yeah. at each distillery. So I really yeah, it, it, it was kind of different uh, in, in that respect. I, I must admit, you know, the, the the initial pitch for the book uh, it was nothing like the book ended up, you know, <laughs> which is a good thing actually. I think you know things things change, and it was about halfway through the trip I realized that, uh, which I did with, with this amazing photographer called, called Kohei Take. Uh, he's a re- really dear friend, and you know, it was, this is a collaboration. The, the book is very much a collaboration between the two of us. And it, I, I sort of realised. Remember, we were sitting down having a drink, and I went, "I've kind of worked it right. I know what the book looks like now, and the book is actually this journey. You know, mm. so it starts on that day when I arrive, and it finishes when I leave. Mm. And the story, you know, the narrative is the trip. Mm. So the history of Japanese whiskey is there, but it's kind of dotted around." throughout the book mm. and uh, the kind of the deepening appreciation uh, and questions about culture uh, are kind of dropped in as I'm beginning to ask them uh, to, to, to people and to craftspeople as well. Mm. I think that's, that's the other element that's different, that I'm not just speaking to distillers, I'm speaking to mm. you know, uh, potters and that, that amazing woman that, 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 that makes uh, architectural washi and pewter mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, there are all these different craftspeople. Right, so yeah. so many cultural aspects and I yeah, really enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah. Even the izakaya too, so little oh, yeah, important yeah, yeah. Chef Hashimoto, yeah, who's just, you know, I, I, I've been to a few Michelin star restaurants and they're usually pretty serious places and this is one of the most hilarious restaurants I've ever been to. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was a joy to sit there. You kept playing tricks on us, you know, by, by mm. serving us uh, it's whiskey kaiseki, and you know the the, fir- the first course was you know the, the beer. You always have a beer to start a meal before you, you go, and, and he served us this beer, and I said, "Oh, that's fine." And then he went, <laughs> we taking a sip, and he went, "Ah, it's actually whiskey." <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, it was great. It was it was a joyous evening, uh, mm. but I learned so much about kaiseki from him as well, mm. and then how how that fits into to, to that whole that whole web. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so the book's title, The Wave of Whiskey, uh, is translated in Japanese as whiskey doll. Mm-hmm. And here, doll is used in the same manner as uh, judo, kendo, 
cuddle, subtle, yeah. and all those whatever includes the spiritual uh, aspects mm. uh, in their practice. So, why did you name it as whiskey dough? Uh, whiskey dough uh, came really from uh, another good friend of mine, a man called Mike Miyamoto, uh, who uh, works for Suntory, was mm-hmm. former manager at couple, uh, both their distilleries and brand ambassador and, and everything. And we, we were having a, a drink after a visit to, to Hakshu and uh, I was asking uh, asking him, <laughs> I was thinking, of what makes Japanese whiskey Japanese? Which, which is kind of the question I asked everybody. He went, because it's made in Japan. And I went, yeah, great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he said, no, no, because everything that, that we do is with a Japanese sensibility. You know, it's just part and parcel of who we are. And it was him who, who then said, you know, we approach everything as, as dough. Mm. You know, you know whether that's flower arranging or or tea or or whatever, um, you know, martial arts, uh, whatever. And whiskey, our approach to whiskey is whiskey dough. Mm. You know, it is the way of whiskey, uh, and it's not about production and it's not about process. It's about it's about nature. It's mm. about craft. It's about respecting ingredients, uh, which are, are, I would say a, a different slant on mm. the concept of whiskey making and distilling to his colleagues in Scotland. Mm. And it's not right or wrong. That, you know, there's a Scottish way of, of making whiskey and there's a Japanese way of making whiskey. And it was kind of when he said that, I, I thought, well, that's good. I am on the right, I, I'm on the right way. Uh, because, you know, this is deeper than, than it may seem. It's not just people making a spirit. It's actually mm. people almost intuitively uh, using the same underlying principles that, that mm. exist all across all Japanese craft to to make whiskey. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so thanks to Mike that he ended up being called Whiskey Dough. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that reminds me of uh, uh, Mr. Shinji Fukuyo, the chief lender at Santori. Mm. Um, he's the fourth generation, I think, uh, yeah. the ma- after Miyamoto-san maybe. But uh, so on his episode 97, he said he, he's way to, you know, to talk about whiskey. It was like a never-ending pursuit of perfection, yes. improvement. Yes, So absolutely. that's the dough. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and it's that kaizen mentality, you know, that that, that incremental continued improvement, uh, which again is a fundamental difference between Japanese and Scotch. You know, a, a Scotch distiller will say, "I want to make uh, my whiskey consistently," which is very difficult, mm. uh, but make you know the same whiskey taste the same today and tomorrow and the day after, or all the way into the future. Mm. And distillers such as Fukuyo-san or, you know, any of his colleagues, you know, Ichiro Akuto or whatever, will all will say, well, actually, no, that, that's not what we want to do. We want to improve continually, continually, continually. Mm. Knowing that perfection is never out there, accepting chance, accepting innovation, but always moving it forward. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's what makes it really, really exciting for me. Right. And I think that's one reason that Japan, Japanese whiskey making is now becoming such a focus for a lot of new distillers around the world mm. who perhaps a decade ago would have looked to Scotland as having a, a template and are now beginning to look at a Japanese approach. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. the reverse yes. export kind yes, of Yes, yeah, and a lot of Scot- Scots distillers are kind of, there's a lot of really great innovation taking place in Scotland. Mm. A lot of that has been driven by, oh, hang on a minute, uh, this is what uh, is happening in Japan. And obviously, you know, with, with you know, investment and, and ownership of distilleries in Scotland by Japanese firms such as Suntory or Nika, mm. uh, there's a lot of cross-fertilisation discussion 
between the two countries, between the, it's a re, it's a very open field. You know, people do exchange mm. information a, a lot, so uh, those, those avenues of communication are are, are open now. Mm. So it's win win for the industry of yeah, whiskey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and win win for for whiskey drinkers, right? Yeah, which is even more important. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, great distillers Dave features in his book, uh, The Way of Whiskey. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Dave Broom, who is an internationally acclaimed author, journalist, and consultant specializing in spirits, and in particular, whiskey. He just published a great book, The Way of Whiskey. Um, so you have visited multiple whiskey distilleries in Japan, and the book features um, them as, like, the, one of the most beautiful things that exist, and each each chapter really was so beautifully written. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, um, so maybe you can share some of the featured distilleries. Yeah. For instance, yeah. I, I was very interested interested in uh, Bencher Whiskey with Chichibu. Oh, Chichibu, yes, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing distillery. So it was founded by uh, a man called uh, Ichiro Akuto, uh, whose family uh, I've been making sake in Chichibu for I think he's like the fourteenth generation or fifteenth generation. Uh, so, you know, they kind of know about booze. Uh, and the distillery is about 10 years old now. So it's, it's, it's relatively new. It was the first of the new wave of distilleries mm. to open up in, in, in Japan. And Ichiro's just got this wonderfully holistic view of what whiskey can be and what a distillery can be in mm. the future. So as well as a lot of the, for, for example... A lot, the, the vast majority of, of barley, which is used for the making of whiskey, is imported into Japan because mm. not a lot of barley is grown in Japan. Uh, so it's coming from Scotland or Australia or Finland or, 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 or wherever. And what Ichiro did was, well, hang on a minute, uh, we've got fields around here, we've got farmers around, uh, around here growing soba uh, for, for noodles. Uh, can they also grow barley? So it, he's now, they're now growing barley for him. Mm. There's peat. Uh, locally as well so he can begin to use local peat uh, there's potentially mizunara in the forests uh, mm. around Chichibu as well which he could perhaps do that mm. and it's just a wonderfully energetic distillery it's basically run by by a whole bunch of young young kids mm. uh, who want, who are whiskey lovers and who want to know everything there is to know about whiskey so mm. they know how to plant they know how to plant and harvest and cereal barley. They know how to do all the malting. They need, they need to know every single aspect of, of whiskey production. Mm. And it's just, it's, a, it's a, a genuinely thrilling place to be. 
and the whiskey's great, uh, mm. but it's a genuinely thrilling place to be because it, it really is, it's, it's kind of rooting whiskey distilling right in the Japanese landscape once mm. more. Uh, and I think that's kind of one of the great themes about 21st century whiskey, not just in Japan, but around the world. Uh, the, the importance of locale, uh, mm. the importance of place, uh, and he's really, uh, he's, you know, taking this forward in in, in Japan. So right. yeah, he's he's an he's an amazing man, uh, and very funny as well. Mm. Yeah, so well, it's good. I always like going drinking with with Chiro. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, so he. Um I heard he almost lost his business because the family lost the business. Yeah, the, mm. the, the family. So the family began making spirits in kind of nineteen forties. Uh, began making whiskey relatively late on in a distillery called Hanyu, uh, which is uh, kind of in between Chichibu and, and Tokyo. Mm. Uh, and they kind of began making whiskey at exactly the wrong time. They began making whiskey just when the market, the domestic market, was going into uh. decline. And Hanyu was quite a big, quite heavy whiskey. Uh, which didn't necessarily appeal to the Japanese palate. Uh, uh, the whiskey was great, but mm. it was just that did it appeal to the Japanese palate. And the distillery closed down in the year 2000 mm. and was demolished. Uh, thankfully, he managed to save the stock. Uh, there's not much of the stock left. He's kind of been eking that out. And then uh, said, right, I, I want to make, I still want to make whiskey. And mm. at that point began looking around and found the land and everything uh, for Chichibu and uh, built the distillery. Mm, yeah. So terroir, that's the yeah, yeah, and, and and it's you know it's one of these words that's kind of slightly difficult to use with whiskey, for it doesn't apply in the same way as it does with wine. But I think it does exist, mm. uh, and he's going perhaps deeper into terroir than than uh, a lot of other uh, larger Japanese distillers who we'd find it difficult because of size and mm. scale. But if you look at the other new distilleries which are opening up in Japan, such as Akeshi which is on, on the, the east coast of Hokkaido, uh, they are applying very similar principles with local barley, local peat, uh, et cetera, wow. et cetera. So it's kind of a new movement within, within Japanese distilling. It's mm. really exciting, really exciting. Ah, that's great. It's also allied, allied more to, to sake, you know, mm. to, to Nihonshu. Right, well, we, t- we talked about this and kind of like a knowledge exchange, the, you know, philosophical exchange between Scotland and Japan. And now that's global, but the localizing is happening too that's exciting yeah yeah and, and I, I think that's what's so exciting about spirits at the moment that, that mm. y- yes uh, it's kind of understanding it was a, a French whiskey maker said it to me you know the, the whole thing about terroir is understanding your constraints mm. you know it's it's sort of saying you know this is what I can't do you know uh, so therefore I, I know what my my limits are and I'm going to exploit what these constraints are. Uh, mm. I think that's a lovely way to look at it. Uh, you know, the, you, there are certain things that you can't do and perhaps shouldn't do because that's not what your climate... You, you'll be working against climate. You'll be working against what cereals can grow or, or whatever. Mm. Uh, so, yes, it's a global market these days, but I think within that global market, the local becomes more important mm. because that's where the individuality lies. Right, but... Understanding your constraints, that applies to human life too. It does, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it does, you know, you know, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of weird to have kind of philosophical constructs in, in a book about spirits, but uh, hey, why not? I think that makes sense. Oh, good, you know, I, that's two of us, that's all right, right. Yeah. I'll do, I'll take that. <laughs> um, so the other one, um, what about Mars? Mars? Mars, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've tried it. 
ever. Mars, yeah, it's quite quite hard to, to find. There is some in the US. Uh, I've done some in, in tastings, uh, but it's very limited. It, yeah, really interesting story. It can be quite a complicated, long story. We did cut to the chase. Mm. Uh, again, it was a distillery which uh, opened up relatively late on, just as the market was going into downturn. Uh, and a tiny little distillery with a very strange name, uh, which again is an interesting story. Uh, and it closed down uh, 90, it was closed for almost 20 years. Mm. Uh, and then restarted, restarted in 20, 2012, 11, 2011, 2012, uh, with a huge, therefore a huge hole in stock. So they had limited amount of really old stuff and then started off uh, basically afresh. Mm. Uh, same shape as stills, but bigger stills. So they're making slightly more whiskey, but still quite a small distillery. But I think the wonderful thing about Mars is that they always made a very sweet whiskey. It's a, it's a lovely, lovely uh, drop. Mm. But when they opened up, reopened the distillery, they went, and I think this is very Japanese, they went, well, we're not going to make what we made beforehand. We're mm. go- it's still going to be identifiably Mars because, you know, this is where we are. But we w- here's a chance for us to move things forward. Mm. So they're looking at different yeasts, they're looking at different peating levels, uh, different cut points. So at the moment, it's still this kind of hotbed of experiment, uh, experimenting uh, going on there to find really what the, the key signature flavours of Mars mm. are going to be. And there's some brands coming out uh, that are available in, in over, over here, but uh, as I said, in limited quantities, which are a blend of a very small amount of that very old stock and some of the new stock coming out. So, mm. uh, But watch out for them. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great distillery. Mm. And it's just got such a crazy name as well. I find myself saying, you know, when I, was, <laughs> when I went to Mars and, and people kind of look at me, <laughs> yeah, you really have lost it this time, Dave. No, honestly, it's a distillery. Yeah. <laughs> no chocolate bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... But it's interesting, right? Like Japanese tradition is very strictly traditional, but there's always an element to tweak around, improve, and make it new all the time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and this was kind of brought out by this, this lady, Eriko Hariki, who, who does this architectural washi. It's mm. a, and I was talking to her about innovation because what she's done with paper, with traditional paper making, is really radical. You know, mm. She makes va- you know, huge, huge uh, pieces, uh, dyed in different colours, sometimes with holes deliberately punched through it, which it runs counter to everything what tra- uh, that traditional paper was right. meant to be, which is you know, <laughs> as pure and as white as possible. Uh, and I was asking her about, about this idea of innovation and about this concept, which I think is a Western concept of Japanese cult, of tradition, which is it has remained the same for 400 years. Mm. And she went, well, no, because, you know, the, the, today's tradition was yesterday's innovation. Mm. And today's innovation is going to be the tradition of the future. Uh, and, but things continually move on and they have to move on. Otherwise, it dies. Mm. Uh, so and I think. And, but I think you see that with culture and, and tradition and craft all around the world, that, that if, if innovation doesn't take place, then, then it simply just begins to disappear. Mm. Uh, and that was a really important lesson for me uh, to try and get into the, you know, that very question. You know, you're everybody thinking, well, it's fixed. So, so, but if it's fixed, how is it changing? Mm. But that is part and parcel of, 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 of what it means. And it's, it's kind of coming, coming back to the way thing. Right. Uh, you know, that, that you know your, your, your fundamental principles, you know, that, that you're kind of going straight down these, these train tracks. Mm. Uh, this is how you make whiskey and this is a tradition that's been passed down from master to apprentice, blah, 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 all, all the way down. But unless you actually step off that path into 
the wildness. Mm. Uh, you're not going to innovate. You're not going to accept chance. You're not going to uh, w- work in that world of creativity. And the creativity mm. kind of sits off, off to one side and you've got to kind of leap off into, into, into the wild mm. to, to, to get that creative impulse and then take things forward. But right. never ignoring the principles mm-hmm. of, of, of your tradition, right. but always asking, always kind of deviating off into the wild. It's mm. good. Right. Yeah, it's quite zen. Yeah. Bit profound. <laughs> mm. That was um, Gary Snyder that told me that. That, was, that, that yeah. wasn't me. <laughs> but, but again, your book contains a lot of, uh, you know, those deep aspects of Japanese culture. Yeah. So I really love yeah. that. Um, well, hopefully there's some jokes in there as well. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's for sure. Um, so the another one, I, I think we should talk about Nika whiskey mm-hmm. because there's Absolutely. always, there's, the Santori was always the history and everything, yeah. but the Nika... Was always there too. Yeah, yeah. Nika, right. Nika's got an incredible story. You know, it was founded by a man called Masataka Takatsuru, who was sent across uh, to learn whiskey making in Japan, uh, in Scotland rather, uh, in 1919. And he arrived in Glasgow when there's tanks in the street of Glasgow because uh, there was a potential Bolshevik revolution going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he stayed in Glasgow learning chemistry. He was a chemist, but he, he took chemistry courses. Uh, and in that 18 months, he worked at three different distilleries and married his landlady's daughter. You know, and that, that's pretty good going, mm. you know. Uh, and he came back uh, as the only person uh, in Japan with, a, with a, an understanding of how whiskey was made. Mm. And he then became distillery manager at Yamazaki uh, under Tori-san. And then went off in 1930s to found his own company called Nika, mm. uh, which is based in Yoichi, uh, which is on an obscure part, especially in those days, on the west coast of Hokkaido, so mm. as far away from the main markets as you could get. Uh, and always making a, a, a style which is slightly richer, slightly fuller than the more restrained aspects that you get in Suntory, but mm. still with that identifiable uh, Japanese character. Mm. Uh, and Nika just make absolutely fantastic, fantastic whiskies. Mm. Uh, two distilleries, uh, Really leading the way in terms of grain as well, grain whiskey with uh, coffee grain, coffee malt. Mm. Uh, yeah, so fantastic, fantastic company. Mm. Uh, well, it's interesting, right? So it used to be only Santori and Nika, like when I grew up, and right. uh, but now there's so many new distilleries. Mm-hmm. So why now more young distilleries? Yeah, I, I think I, I, there's another kind of sleeping giant in there as well, which is Kirin, which is Gotemba. Uh, mm. It's owned by Kirin, you're a, you're a massive brewer. Uh, and fingers crossed, you'll begin to see that appearing on the on the on the, on the uh, export markets as well. And they're a fairly substantial producer, actually. Mm. Uh, Tanaka is the blender there; makes amazing, amazing whiskey. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's just been a, a global boom in whiskey, uh, and there was a boom in Japanese whiskey. But then also a lot of what we used to wrongly call craft distillers uh, began to spring up. Uh, all around the world mm. and various folk in Japan kind of went well we should be part of that as well mm. they were perhaps slightly later off the mark than, than, than others I think that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, but you know over the past couple of years uh, there's been a real rash of, of, of new openings in Japan so I think it's a very very exciting future mm. uh, ahead so uh, and all they'll all do something slightly different, but you know, under underpinning it all will be a sense of Japaneseness. Mm. Uh, 
but you know, greater variation, uh, a lot, perhaps more attention to the local, uh, using different grains, perhaps uh, mm. using local paint. I mean, there's a, a whole, n- there's a whole world of possibilities uh, for Japanese whiskey. It's great, mm, right. really exciting times. Yeah, it's noticeably like over the, s- I would say, several years. And if you go to a um, liquor shop, there's more bigger section of Japanese whiskey. Yeah. And uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, it, it's hugely exciting. Uh, and, and people are now... I think people are just more willing to try new things, to be honest. I, I think that the days of, you know, uh, I am a whiskey drinker, so I only I only drink... My, my, my dad was a whiskey drinker, and, you know, that's what he drank. He had one drink of whiskey every night. Uh, and I think people are now... You know, they'll be drinking beer one day. They might have might have whiskey, but mm. it, it won't necessarily be one style. It could be, right, today I'll have a bourbon, tomorrow I'll have Irish, the day after I'll have a Japanese... Uh, but I might also have a gin at some point. I might have rum. So mm. I think people are people's tastes are, are much more Catholic uh, these days. Right. So there's a lot more of people dipping in and out and just becoming fascinated by flavour. Mm. Uh, right. Yeah. So do you think that's why uh, Japanese whiskey became so popular globally? Oh, yeah, I, yeah I, I think it became popular for its great. You know, because it has incredibly high quality. Uh, you know, so it tasted good. Uh, mm. You know, they, we always kind of forget that. I think it benefited from just the general global interest in all things Japanese and Japanese cuisine. So, you know, the fact that, you know, it, it is, you know, as you said at the, at the top of the show, it's more to Japanese food than just sushi. Mm. But, you know, I, I think that kind of deepening interest in, in Japanese cuisine, you know, spills off into what else is, is out there. So you mm. see a growth in people in sake, for, for example, and certainly uh, whiskey has benefited from that as well. Mm. Right. Well, somebody behind the bottles sacrificing or devoting their lives to this yeah, bottle. Yeah, it's a really good point that, you know, it's made by people. You know, it, it, it's not made by, by machines. Mm. You know, it, it, is, it is the people who are passing on their knowledge from, from one generation to the next. Mm. I just remember that Fukuyo-san of Santori, when I came to the show, he said he wakes up every day at four because he has to travel. He's based in Osaka. Yeah. He goes to to- uh, go to Tokyo. And then... When you travel, you have to get up earlier. So just not to mess with your palate every day of Scadian rhythm. So he gets up four o'clock every morning so that it doesn't matter if he goes to Tokyo or not. Yeah, so. I know, I know. He, he's, he's just, <laughs> uh, he's such an extraordinary man. And, and they have the same, he, he and Koshimitsu-san, who, who he took over from, uh, have the same lunch every mm. day. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you know, you go to the canteen at, at, at Yamasaki. They will, you know, it is the blender's lunch. Mm. Uh, so that that is always the same. So every day, so their palate right. hasn't been affected by different foods. So if they're working in the blending lab room, that's what you have. Mm. You know, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't see that happening in Scotland. You know, <laughs> it, you know it's kind of oh, today it's a steak pie, tomorrow it's you know, something else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's a big sacrifice, but I'm sure that it's compensated by drinking great whiskeys. Oh yeah, day, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, by the way, when you go to Japan, where do you hang out to have a great scotch and uh, the Japanese whiskey? Oh, uh, if I'm in Tokyo, I go to a bar called Zoetrope, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, has just got the largest collection of of. Uh, how does he describe it? Uh, Horigami san says it's uh, Western style Japanese distilled spirits. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's amazing. So, so you just find uh, Japanese whiskies, which you basically can't see anywhere else, and mm. some very old bottlings as well. Not all of which are great, actually. It's, it's a very instructive place to, to be. So I like kind of hanging out there. Mm. So just Zotrop, it's in the book, but uh, Z-O-E-T-R-O-P-E yeah. in Shinjuku. In Shinjuku. And yeah. I heard it's like a very like dark 
back street. Yeah, yeah, it's a dark, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I quite like kind of dark back streets. Uh, you know, I, you know, but I, I go kind of high end as well. So I go to uh, high bar, high five, uh, to Star Bar. I always go to Star Bar in, in Ginza. Mm. Uh, but oh God, it's Japan. I mean, you know, it's there, there's. A, there's a bar around every corner. Uh, mm. it, 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 that's what's amazing about it. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, and the bar scene is so different, you know, compared comparing uh, what's happening in in Tokyo, but even comparing Shinjuku to to Ginza or or Shinbashi, you know, mm. that you've got three very different vibes going on there. Totally. Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and I like kind of Japanese dive bars. Mm. Uh, you know, they're they're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, but then you go to Osaka and, and suddenly the, the bar scene is completely different. It's much more hectic, it's much more, you know, up there, it's in your mm. face. And then Kyoto uh, is, you know, very Kyoto, so it's a bit more kind of restrained. But a lot of innovation taking place uh, with, with, with cocktails, especially in Kyoto. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I just I hang out in yeah. loads of places. I'm curious, uh, how do you describe Japanese, um, the Tokyo-style dive bar? Uh, well, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, it's probably more sake being drunk than, than whiskey. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's perhaps like somewhere like Golden Guy to, to a certain extent, you know, mm. which is like two city blocks with about 200 bars in them. In all Shinjuku. Of which, yeah, right. all of which are, are themed in a slightly different way. So, mm. you know, I spent an evening in the hard-boiled fiction bar. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not much... This studio is like twice the size of a bar in Golden Guy. Mm. You know, you can maybe fit five or seven people right. huddled around a bar just talking about one very specialist <laughs> subject. Uh or uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a chain, uh, a chain of bars called Abbott's Choice, uh, and there's one up in Roppongi, uh, and it's kind of it's the bar where bartenders go to drink after their shift has finished. So mm. it is one of these places you can go at like four o'clock in the morning, and and you know after a shift, and it's you know it's just people kicking back, relaxing, and it's beer, and it's you know it's kind of dive bar. Mm. vibe but in a kind of Tokyo way but they've got 200 whiskeys behind the bar wow <laughs> what's the name again <laughs> it's called Abbott's Choice Abbott's Choice yeah. okay yeah. right by the way that golden guy <clears throat> I think it used to be uh, like tons of Brussels and oh yeah yeah it, it was very much a red light district it's not that anymore I hasten to right. add just in case my wife is listening uh, <laughs> but but no, it I, turned I, after you know it is an illegal to have like prostitutes and yeah. all those things over there so then it turned to be you know the bar section of the, the town, and then a lot of uh, famous writers and artists started together. So it's completely became cultural. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of one of it's, you know, it, in some ways it's kind of the, the original hipster. Right, right. <laughs> the, the hipster uh, area of, 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 of Tokyo, you know, it's kind of the, it was the, the Brooklyn of Tokyo. Mm, yeah, so <laughs> your uh, wife can now relax. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, she can relax. <laughs> right. Um, so, how do you think, um, how relevant? is the role of all those bars, you know, the drinking, uh, like bartenders to, you know, all those establishments role to support whiskey culture? Oh, very much so. Uh, and I think the, the influence of Japanese bar culture and kind of cocktail bar culture uh, has had a huge effect uh, all around the world. Uh, so you have bartenders from, certainly from the US, certainly from Europe, going over to Japan, uh, mm. learning, watching... Uh, bringing back techniques, you know, the fact that you know, people over here have things like ice programs, all of that's coming from Japan. Mm. Uh, shaking techniques, that's all coming from Japan, even though quite often the wrong type of shakers used, but uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's kind of drifting in there. But uh, but I think, and I think perhaps the, the, the most important uh, element of it is this 
idea that if you walk into a Japanese bar, or three of us walk into a Japanese bar, and you know, I'm I'm drinking water, you're drinking a cocktail, and, and our, our friend is drinking a whiskey, mm-hmm. the water will be served with the same attention to detail mm-hmm. as as the whiskey, as the cocktail, uh, and the sense of hospitality and the sense of making the the best drink that you can at that particular point mm-hmm. comes across, and also it is the drink which is important. So it's not ego. So, you know, the Western bartending tends to be more kind of ego-driven. You know, I'm the bartender, this is what I'm doing, etc. And, and, yeah, and that's fine because that's part of, you know, our, our particular culture. But I think the way in which the, the drink becomes the most important thing in mm. Japan uh, is really important. And that also kind of resonates with, with, with whiskey uh, itself. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, I talked to a few bartenders in, in the book. Right. Uh, I didn't have enough space to, to have everybody in there. Uh, but, you know, some of the discussions we went, again, just went, significantly deeper than I ever thought, <laughs> you know, yeah, ever imagined. You know, like the, the symbolism of an, of an ice ball. Mm. You know, it's not just a ball of ice. It's actually symbolising time. You know, it's, it's mad. Wow. You have to buy the book to, to come. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe but yeah, it, when you come back, we can talk about them too. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. But it's really important. You know, that, that, that yeah, it's like the whiskey itself. You know, it, mm. it's, allowing, it's allowing the whiskey to speak. You know, mm. they're, they're not kind of... Right. So bartenders are also part of whiskey, though, the way of whiskey. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I have one more quick question about, sure. you know, I don't think you can talk about Japanese whiskey without talking about highballs. Sure. So yeah. what is highball? What, why is it so important? Uh, highball, well, I mean, highballs, quite simply, so whiskey and soda. Uh, and really, t- this, this kind of highball revolution uh, that's taken whiskey by storm in Japan. So the Japanese whiskey industry went into like 25 years of decline from, from the, the, the mid-80s onwards. And various things were trying to try and revive it in the domestic market. It wasn't working. A new generation was drinking shochu uh, instead, of, instead of whiskey. And then uh, Suntory it was kind of realised there was a couple of bars that were selling huge amounts of whiskey uh, and went and investigated why they were make, selling so much and realised they were making good old-fashioned highballs. Mm. Uh, and that was Rockfish, uh, which is in Shimbashi, and uh, Samboa uh, in Osaka. And Suntory at that point went, OK, let's test this out in Izakaya across Japan. <laughs> and suddenly everybody went, wow, where have you been all, uh, all my life? You know, a new generation trying whiskey in a different serve because mm. whiskey by that time had been unfashionable and people began were beginning to drink single malts and they were drinking kind of neat and on the side mm. and they weren't necessarily social they were, they were quite kind of you know very focused and everything was very quiet very serious and suddenly you've got a celebratory drink mm. you know that you can you can drink especially you know and it's cooling and it's refreshing and it's low in alcohol so you can drink it all the way with food right. And it's kind of ticking all the boxes uh, for today's drink and also for the original principles of Japanese whiskey mm. making, which was make something lighter to go with food. And that's just t- t- taken off. So, mm. so you can get amazing highballs in very high-end uh, restaurants and you can get you know, half pints of, of highballs on draft mm. uh, in, in izakaya. And it's, it's just it's wonderful. It's such a great drink. You know, <laughs> I think that, that's the important thing. It's yeah. just And also a it great connected drink. food... With yes. whiskey, which yeah. is not seen here. No, and, and, and that, that was kind of one of the things that Tori-san did uh, in 1928, after the first whiskey failed because it was too heavy and too scotch-like. Mm. Uh, he said, well, you know, if Japanese whiskey is to succeed, it has to fit in with the climate and with the food, and people are going to be drinking it with the meal. Mm. And that means you're not going to be drinking hard liquor 
neat hard liquor all the way through a meal. You know, I think that's, that's a pretty tough ask. Right. But if you have a really fascinating complex drink, which still stands up to dilution, mm. uh, you know, to, to a strength which is more or less like a glass of wine, to be honest, mm. uh, it's something which is cooling, refreshing, uh, and also will accompany food uh, very right. nicely. So it, it kind of works in, in two different dimensions, really. Mm. It's also a great reset, you know, after a, a pretty hard day's work. You right. walk into a bar and you sit down, you have a highball, you go, right, okay, but the evening starts here. Mm, right. So, well, the listeners, you, you haven't tried a highball. I think highballs started to be served here in this country. Too. Yes, yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, you know, there's various highball machines, uh, you know. And, and people ask me, oh, my goodness, how do you make it? Well, you know, it's quite easy. You take some whiskey and you have a tall glass and you add ice, but good ice, uh, and top it up with soda water. So mm. either two to one or three to one. Uh, if you wanted to move it into kind of rockfish samboa territory, put your whiskey in, in the in the freezer, so mm. have it really cold, have the glasses really cold, and that means you don't need to use the ice, have the soda ah. uh, really cold, and it's just a wonderfully refreshing drink. Mm, that's a great idea, actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow, so it's a perfect for spring and summer. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, in your book, you express your endless curiosity about Japanese whiskey. So what's your plan? They're going to keep working with Japanese distilleries, or what? yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, th- th- this isn't the end. This is the, you know, the opening up of a new chapter. You know, mm. new distilleries starting up. Uh, you know, how do we? You know, what's going to happen next? Uh, there's so many exciting things taking place in Japan at the moment because you know, whiskey is in short supply. You know, there's not a huge amount of mature stock because the industry had gone into a long period of decline. So mm. there's not a huge amount of mature stock. But what is being made now? is again slightly different to what was being made a few years back so i think there's lots of new flavors and lots of new techniques and lots of uh new new opportunities and openings for for whiskey as it moves mm. forward so yeah yeah no nothing is ever finished okay you know? so hopefully uh, this was going to be the the first episode with you and then you can keep coming back i sincerely hope so thank you right. okay and uh, where can we find your update online and also you where can find your book uh, the, the book will be available through all good uh, independent booksellers and, of course, online mm. uh, in various large uh, retail. I, I, I don't know if you're allowed to mention things. I'm coming from British. <laughs> I'm coming from Britain, but you're not allowed to mention companies. Uh, but, yeah, it's readily available. Uh, thank you. I have a family to support, so, so every donation is, is gratefully received. Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not on Facebook. I've, I defaced myself a good few years ago. It's very liberating, folks. You should mm. try it. Uh, <laughs> but I am on uh, Instagram as Dave Wasabi. Mm. Uh, and I'm on Twitter as uh, Dave Broom Whiskey. Great. Wonderful. So listeners, uh, The Way of Whiskey is one of the greatest books ever read about Japanese culture, not, not to mention uh, the depths of Japanese whiskey culture. So I highly recommend that to take a look at it. And the picture is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Itaki is just an amazing photographer. Yeah. Right. Okay, so thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So, uh, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or the suggestions for short topics or guests, please contact us at japaneseheritageradionetwork.org or akikukatayama.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And our engineer is David Tadesiore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.